Well, let me ask you this morning to turn again to the book of Romans chapter 12. Last Lord's Day as we began our look at these famous opening two verses, we read the doxology of the closing verses of chapter 11, but I today just want to read these two most familiar verses before we meditate on them together. So Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, amen. We trust again the Lord's blessing to be on the public reading of His inspired Word. And I will ask you again to bow together with me. Let's ask the Lord's help as we consider His Word together. Our Heavenly Father, we again pause corporately to enter your presence, to remind ourselves of your presence, and to ask your help, Lord, perhaps in a peculiar way today, that you would help us to rightly consider the word that is before us, to not be deceived into thinking we have no need of thinking about such familiar verses. We have no need of being reminded of that which we know. And yet you've even spoken to us elsewhere in your word that the Apostle Peter said he wouldn't cease to put us in remembrance of things though we know them. And so let us have more of that mind today. And we ask for help then in opening and help in hearing your word now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first two verses of Romans 12 are rightly some of the most familiar verses in this book. This is high recommendation for verses that are found within a book that is filled with key texts, texts that each believer, I think, should seek to commit to memory. These verses stand like an attention-grabbing beacon to the remainder of this book. We said and pointed out before that Romans, not unlike other epistles, and again we say these things with the caveat that doctrinal portions of the epistles have very practical stuff in them, and the practical section of the epistles sometimes touch on the deepest points of theology. But clearly in Romans there is a break. There is a systematic statement of doctrine. There is an examination of questions about those doctrines that come along the way. There is a doxology of praise that concludes that section of Paul's treatment of the outworking of the gospel. And then clearly we come to this 12th chapter and the chapters that follow to practical admonitions that are based upon that teaching. And so I say these two familiar verses are like a light to grab our attention to the rest of the stuff that Paul's going to deal with in this book of Romans. Last week we suggested that there are positives and negatives in these two verses that we find here. Last week, verse 1, was primarily positive. This week, verse 2, while it certainly contains additional positive instruction, it also contains an emphatic and far-reaching negative component. And of course, we'll find that in the opening phrase. But if we could for a moment just review our thoughts from last week, seek to frame and collect our thoughts for this week. Looking at the phrases and with a more compressed outline and analysis, when we look at the opening phrase of these verses, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, we see the foundation of Christian service, the very foundation for Christian living. I mean, we talked about the necessity of the new birth. You can't engage in Christian living if you're not a Christian. Paul's writing to us as brethren, but he's beseeching us based on something. 
He's beseeching us based on all the doctrine, all the truth of the gospel that he's so carefully unfolded. And again, let us just be reminded of the necessity of sound doctrine. There's nothing more frustrating. And I think in many ways this characterized the second half of the 20th century, again, in large, in general, in American evangelical Christianity. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to pursue biblical Christian living, godliness in a world that's ungodly, than trying to do that without an understanding of the gospel. The details of the gospel that Paul unfolds in this book. Our Christian service, our Christian living, has got to have the foundation of sound doctrine. And so let us be ever mindful of that, ever on a journey to learn more of the truths of the gospel. So it's foundation in that opening phrase. Then it's motivation. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Gospel thinking is what's going to flow out of gospel understanding, of gospel truth. And again, where are we going to have the power, the motivation, the will to engage in Christian living? By having gospel thinking. The mercies of God. And again, that Paul chooses out of the many words that one that focuses on God not dealing with us according to our iniquities. God not giving us what we really deserve. Here's our motivation. Could I suggest that third phrase, a living sacrifice? Here's the essence then of Christian living. He pulls a very vivid illustration from the Old Testament Scriptures. The very types of offerings, again, we don't pursue all of those. He doesn't pursue all of those here. But the point of Christian living is that of a living sacrifice. This is contrary to thinking of the world, as we'll see later today. The world says, be your own man, do your own thing. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. It's a virtue. The gospel says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. And the irony is, the world and its supposed freedom pursues a course of self-destruction and misery. The Christian, in his bondage unto Jesus Christ, in recognizing he's not his own, he belongs to one that has purchased him, and yet this one has purchased him in order that he might have good in order that he might be happy, in order that he might fulfill that for which he's been created, that he might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The essence of Christian living then is having that mindset. We're not our own. A living sacrifice. The nature, if we can look at the fourth phrase, which is your reasonable service. That mindful, spiritual worship service. Remember the commentators wrestling with the different nuances of those words and the answer is yes. They're all there. Well, today we come to the second verse. And if I could suggest to you just to summarize these phrases before we begin. That in the first two of these phrases, we find the manner of Christian service. The manner of Christian living. What does Christian living look like? That's our oft-repeated phrase in recent years. What's that look like? Well, we're told here, foundational, clear understanding of what Christian living is going to look like. And here's where we have a negative and a positive. And then lastly, that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here's the fruit of Christian service. Here's the outworking of Christian living. So today as we come to the second verse, just the three phrases put before us supply our points of consideration. 
Paul says, be not conformed to this world. So I suggest to you firstly today that in Christian living, we are to cast off the things of the present age. You'll notice I've used the word age and not world here. It's not to make a radical distinction. But there are two different words in the New Testament scriptures that are often translated world. Sometimes one is translated age instead of world. And in some of the more familiar passages, it's actually a different word than the word that's in this passage. You think about love not the world, the things that are in the world, etc. That is the word cosmos. The word that's in this passage is the word aeon. It is focusing more on a temporal aspect of this age. Well, if you think about that, worldliness in the sense of the one term, the cosmos, well, it is that which is conformed to the present age because this age is under the curse. This is an age in which men in their sinful ways depart from the things of God. And so what characterizes this age is worldliness. So again, different terms, different shades of emphasis, but the truth underneath is one great truth. The stuff that characterizes this present world, this present age, that we are not to be conformed to. You've heard the praise, don't let the world press you into its mold. Well, let us again pause. Let us seriously think about that which for many of us is most familiar. What is this other word, the cosmos, the world? I love to illustrate this word because it has at its root meaning an orderly arrangement. That which characterizes something. And it's where we get our word cosmetics. So, I should say you ladies, but in the current world, um, maybe men visit the cosmetics counter as well. Back in the days when I used to go to the mall, uh, I used to be amazed at how deep you had to get into the store before you left the cosmetics section and got into where you needed to go get a pair of shoes seem like there might be an emphasis on such things in our culture. But given that aspect of the term then, what is the orderly arrangement of this fallen world, of this fallen age? That which gives a unifying principle to fallen humanity. The nature of fallen man. If we could put it in this way, it's the default setting of the, of the depraved mind. The cosmos, the world system, if you're old enough to remember an old or maybe more accurately a new Schofield reference Bible, you might have had the brackets around the word world in the marginal reading there. Uh, now I've already lost the thought, the world system. But I think I may have missed the phrase. It's been a long time, although I did read significantly from an old Schofield Bible last week to the students to tell them a little more about what not to believe, but I digress. But I say it's what gives community to the lost. It's what in a sense brings fallen men together. It's the stuff they can readily identify with. That's what characterizes worldliness. And I know we're living in a season in which Christians are fiercely debating and wrestling with each other about a lot of things that come under this topic. Christian liberty versus rules and all of that. Well, we're not going to pursue that at length, but the principles is a word that used to be a, a tough word in the evangelical church. A lot of teaching on principles by the seminar teachers and so forth. They actually didn't engage in principles. They engaged in particulars. They gave you lists. Told you how to do it. What they really should have been doing was giving principles. Going to the scriptures. Showing truth like what is the difference between a worldly mind and a renewed mind. But here again I digress. But I say this is what gives community 
to those outside of Christ. It's not to say that we have nothing in common with the unsaved. It's not to say that we can never have any point of contact with the unsaved. But it's to say we're we're on different paths. We have a different outlook on life. We have different pursuits then. There's going to be a divergence in our lifestyle choices in the things that we engage and the things that we would shun. You actually think of it in better times. Culture and law were parts of human experience that were given in many ways to restrain the impulses of the fallen heart and mind. There was a common understanding that this type of stuff doesn't promote the common good. This kind of stuff hurts people. It wrecks lives. It wrecks homes. It wrecks businesses. It does havoc. We shouldn't have that. I say that's in better times where culture and law provide restraint. In times like ours, where a sovereign God is removing His hand of restraint, allowing even means through which such restraints were provided to be removed, happily removed in the case of the ungodly. It's a fearful season. But what then of this thing of worldliness? Well, consider just some with me today. Several parallel passages will cross our minds and hearts today. In John 14, the Lord speaks with one of these terms about the world, the cosmos, when he speaks of Satan and describes him as the prince of this world. We find the other term of the Satan in 2 Corinthians 4, when he is spoken of as the God of this age, who has blinded the minds of them who believe not. And so there is a sense, there is almost a defining sense in which the world is the dominion of Satan. And so as believers, those that have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness, well, we're going to be not conformed to this world. We're not going to go along with the default setting of the sinful heart of man. And here we're given in no uncertain terms that admonition. Think of some other portions in John's Gospel and John's Epistles. The very opening chapter where John describes the Word. The Word that was made flesh, which we remember in this remembrance of the Incarnation. He said He came into the world And the world received him not. The world knew him not. And the same apostle in his first epistle says this, because what's true of Christ, Christ told us, would be true of his disciples. John says in 1 John 3 and verse 1, the world knows us not because it knew him not. So the world... That which characterizes it is it's it's the dominion of Satan. It's a realm in which he has sway. Where men are taken captive by him at his will. It's a world. It is something that is held together and has in common. That it does not receive Christ. And so in accordance with that, it doesn't receive Christ's people. There's a difference. The world knows its own. James has a striking statement with regard to the world. He says in chapter 4 and verse 4 that friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's almost like the Lord said, you can't serve two masters. And so to be in friendship with the world 
to have in common that which binds sinners together is to be at enmity with God. It is to be outside of God's people. And so we can understand it in a definitive way. Worldliness does not characterize true believers because the world system, this age, this cursed world is contrary to its creator. It is embracing transgression of his law instead of embracing fulfilling his law. In Ephesians 2, if you want to turn with me there, the apostle uses striking language in this, again, most familiar portion. Ephesians 2, again, most familiar words to us. You, verse 1, hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past, that is before you were converted, before you were made alive, before you were quickened, before you were transported out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, wherein in time past you walked according to, and here Paul uses both of our words, the course, that's the word translated age in Romans 12 too. The course of this world. There's our other worldly word. Cosmos. According to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. What is true of a Christian? What is in this light shining beacon at the opening of the practical section of Romans? is that Christians aren't like they used to be. Christians are not like other people. They've been born from above. They have a new citizenship. They have a new point of reference. They have a new relationship to God. And the world doesn't have that. That which binds them together, that which they have in common, is that they are still alienated from God. They are still dead in trespasses and sins. They haven't been quickened. And so, what's going to characterize their lifestyle is different than what will characterize ours as those who have been quickened, as those who have passed from death unto life, as those who have new life in Christ Jesus. Paul, we've quoted it already more than once, I think. In Colossians 1, speaks of us of having been delivered from the power of darkness. I think even of that, of what is common, what characterizes the world, the power, the control, the dominion of darkness, of unbelief, of that which is contrary to our good and our neighbor's good. And yet it is this that the unsaved find in common. It's what binds them together. It's the default setting for where we go with entertainment, with conversation, with music. The world seeks because we're created as social creatures. The world seeks community. But without new life, without being born again, the only place they can connect is in stuff that's contrary to God. If you come to consider, Paul says in Galatians, regard to, well, I guess the primary theme of the text I'm going to quote to you is the cross, crucifixions. Remember a lot of years ago now, I think we stole somebody else's outline. Might have been Spurgeon's. Three crucifixions in Galatians 6.14. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a cross of Christ. 
But then Paul says, by which the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. When we come to Christ, the world dies to us. That which is antagonistic to our God, that which would not receive our Savior, that which would not walk in newness of life, dies to us. That's what was true of us in time past, before we were born again. And the corollary to that, that third crucifixion is, Paul said, the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. The world says, yeah, I agree with that. We're going different directions. You're dead to me. And that's why, again, we've seen it two or three times in our Wednesday prayer meetings in the 119th Psalm. Some emphasis on our companions. Who are the people that we're drawn to? Who are the people that are drawn to us? Are they worldly? Or are they God-fearing? Do they know our God? Have they entered the kingdom of His dear Son? So when we come back to even the language of our text in Romans 12, I do think it is interesting that he uses the word age instead of cosmos here. Be not conformed to this age. Don't be conformed to now. Don't live for now. Worldlings live for now. They're content in a cursed world. A believer isn't content in a cursed world. So he doesn't live for this age. He lives for the age to come. He lives for an age in which all that brings sorrow and tears and pain is gone. And I say it's a marvel. The world doesn't advertise itself this way. The world advertises itself as, yeah, pleasures are great. Look at all the happiness it brings. And there's just misery written all over the world. Our culture has changed so much in my lifetime. No comments about the length of time we just mentioned. But if there's anything that you would write down in your opening observations, it's that misery, discontentedness, characterizes this age. Anger. I remember seeing a news broadcast a few years ago now because it was commemorating was it the 25th anniversary of Woodstock in the 90s and they showed some footage from Woodstock a lot of which I'm sure had to be edited for television and then some footage of the new Woodstock gathering they had both were bad. Both were dominated by people of a world system, a world mindset. But just to see the difference, the, the anger, the rage, and the despair of the arts, it's almost too flattering a word to use, but of that next generation, which is, I guess, a generation even ago now, Where does the world end up? What does John say? So we love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away. And the lusts thereof. When you read the scriptures... How is that passing away going to happen? And the burning wrath of God. Because He's going to put away everything 
that has its direction as the destruction of us. Sin brings misery and death. The Gospel brings life and joy. Don't live for now. It could be a series of messages on the opening phrase of our text. But we're told very plainly at this opening announcement with regard to the other stuff that's going to come with regard to practical Christian living, cast off the things of this present age. Don't be conformed to the world. But now think with me secondly. Here's the positive. Do put on the things of the world to come. He says, be not conformed to this world, but there's a strong contrast here. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word underneath transformed here is where we get our word metamorphosis. The transformation that occurs in the life of a believer is nothing short of, it's actually defined by passing from death unto life. And so instead of letting the world press us into its mold and following after the things, the course of this ungodly world, we're instead to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. I have to hasten as I see the time here. But some of the commentators pause and just do a little parsing. This is a present passive imperative. The emphasis of each of those parts of grammar, if you will, that it's present shows it's a continuing thing. This is an ongoing work. This is an ongoing life of growth in the life of the believer. It's passive. Let yourselves be transformed. The emphasis here on the work of God, and yet it's an imperative. So we're not entirely passive. We're engaged. I always like to use the emphasis when we talk about the different parts and the order of salvation in our Christian experience. When we're dead in trespasses and sins, we can't initiate anything good to which God's going to respond, which is Arminianism. No, we're dead. And dead people don't promote and pursue good stuff that God sees and gives us credit for. We're spiritually incapable of good. We cannot produce merit in the sight of God. But when we're regenerated, we're born again, we're not dead anymore. Now again, we don't then from that new position justify ourselves. We understand justification. This is Christian living based on the therefore of Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, which teaches the gospel of grace, but not being dead anymore. We do follow on. We do pursue those things that are called newness of life. And I think even in blending out a present passive imperative, it's pretty much what Paul says in Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works within you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Put on the things of the world to come. Can we understand here that this cuts against stagnation in Christian living? It cuts against complacency. It cuts against pride. But think of not being conformed to now. How is it stated in Colossians? If ye that since ye are risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above. Where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Seek those things of the age to come. Interesting to note the emphasis on the mind. 
be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Christianity is not mindless. Christianity is not characterized even in its practical stuff by just emotionalism. Just getting excited about God. Who's God? What's God? The renewing of your mind. And you start working through what Paul's wrestled with in those 11 chapters that precede the therefore. That can occupy the most brilliant mind for eternity. I love to bring together those phrases where we're not to be beguiled by Satan away from the simplicity that's in Christ. But then Paul, few people had minds like Paul's. Paul could speak of the unsearchable riches of Christ. The renewing of our mind. And think of the wisdom of the Old Testament. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What occupies your mind? I think it's been a long time since I've mentioned this, but I've often in this pulpit put it before you. Where does your mind go when you don't have anything else to do? When you're not busy at a hectic day at work? When you're not, I don't know, doing your homework or whatever else has occupied your mind? Where does your mind go when it has the liberty to travel somewhere? It's going to say a lot about who you are. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. But I want to come quickly to our last phrase. We read here, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Some translate it, you may prove that which is good and acceptable or pleasing and perfect, colon, the will of God. I don't think this is a passage in which we go and say, well, I'm supposed to be a a plumber or an architect. Uh, The will of God brings us to questions like that as believers. Sometimes theologians divide, I think, rightly and of necessity between the decretive will of God. Our view of God is that He has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. We have some difficulties to wrestle with there because He allowed, He decreed that sin enter His creation without being the author of sin. But we also speak of the pre- of God. That is His law, His Word. The stuff He puts before us is what we're supposed to do in contrast to the stuff we're not supposed to do. And it's clearly this aspect of the will of God that we're seeing proved here. And proving here has the idea of to test. Some versions even bring both words together for the one word in the original, to test or approve. You see, it's not just that we would discover what the will of God is, but that having discovered it, we put it into practice. And that's where the amazing thing is to study the law of God, that which is a reflection of His character. Robert Candler speaks of God's will in these two ways. Essentially. What is the will of God? Essentially. His preceptive will. It's an expression of His nature. But what is it formally? It's a revelation of our duty. Learning the will of God. That can be a a daunting task without the therefore. This phrase brings us to questions that can focus on perfectionism. This is a big topic. I'm bringing it up late in the sermon on a rainy Sunday and maybe stressing our ability to keep going. 
but keep going with me just for a few brief more minutes here. What is perfection? It's a doctrine that has arisen in the Christian church. It predates the New Testament to be sure. But that Christians can reach a level of perfection. Christians reach a point where they don't sin anymore. What is a perfectionist? It's somebody that redefines sin. Because if you have to define sin in such a way as you can look at your life and say, there isn't any of that in me, well, you've given a new definition of sin than the Bible gives. So we must rightly deny perfectionism. And yet at the same time, we keep perfection as the goal. I think one of the things that's troubling in our modern context is that people that are trying to come out from under perfectionist teaching, and there were strains of that that impacted fundamentalism. One of the big criticisms that B.B. Warfield, it's a few years back now, one of the giants of what we call Old Princeton, wrote against Lewis Berry Chafer, the, the champion of classical dispensationalist. Schaefer had perfectionistic tendencies and actualities in his teaching. And a lot of Christians in this evangelical orbit absorb something of perfectionist teaching without understanding it. It's, it's overweighted with Arminianism because Arminians have to think of a standard they're capable of achieving and getting credit for in the sight of God. People caught up in Arminianism and in the hybrid theology I speak of in the last generation or two are always thinking of something they must complete that is meritorious. That's why there's always or often an endless cycle of decisions. Well, I can't go through with a salvation decision again because I already did that. And again, notice the thinking I did that. That's not the way the Bible speaks about salvation. I did that. No, it speaks about it as Christ did something for His people. Christ is doing something in me. But they say, I can't have another salvation decision. I did that, but i got all this mess in my life. I'm just going to rededicate. I'm going to fix it. Great, it's fixed. Until we realize it isn't fixed. And then sometimes people give up. They abandon places where the preaching triggers them. Oh, triggers me a little bit. Or find something softer. Well, I don't think gospel preaching puts people in bondage. Gospel preaching opens our hearts and minds to this truth. Proving the will of God. What does Paul say? Not as though I'd already attained. Think about plugging that in as a frustrated American evangelical. I can't feel good about myself. I've got to figure out some way to feel good about myself. Well, again, that's not the gospel. The gospel is feeling amazing about Jesus and being overwhelmed with gratitude that He has imputed His righteousness to my account. And by His grace, He's given of His Spirit to help me in this pilgrim journey to cast off more and more of the world and to put on more and more of a renewed mind. That instead of having in common the things that people do when they're running away from God, I now have a new community of people that are laboring and striving together in the things of God. Proving, testing, finding, and putting into practice His will. And again, 
How is that defined? Listen with me, if you would, to some rapid-fire scriptures. Ephesians 6 and verse 6, Not with eye service as men-pleasers. Ask me later about that as my grocery store verse. But as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Colossians 4 and verse 12, Laboring, speaking there about Epaphras. He says he's laboring fervently in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. 1 Thessalonians 4 he even gives a more definitive statement. You ever ask somebody when they enter into conversation with you about seeking God's will, you know, should I be the architect or the plumber or whatever? All those wrestlings good have a place, not the bondage place some people put them into. But I love this verse when somebody's asking about that. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God. Black and white. Even your sanctification. Your conformity more and more to the image of Christ, more and more to the new age of the world to come, and less conformed to this now, that's God's will. Growth in grace. First Peter verse four or chapter four and verse two. That you no longer should live the rest of your time in the flesh to the lusts of man, but to the will of God. Ephesians five ten, proving that which is acceptable unto the Lord. And in first John two seventeen, the conclusion of that threefold verse grouping that should be again committed to memory. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Proving. Testing. Finding out putting into practice the will of God. And amazingly, that will that His law is a reflection of issues in our happiness. Christ is redeeming His people from unhappiness. He is redeeming His people from eternal destruction under the wrath of God bringing them into the new world. God's happy presence. And of course, the psalmist understood this when he said, at thy right hand, pleasures forevermore. Christian living is not bondage. Godliness, living differently than other people, Living differently than the world is not some miserable thing that some backwards old fuddy-duddy of a Christian is trying to manipulate you into and keeping you from being a happy person. If you have that mindset, then your definition of Christianity, your definition of new life, your definition of the difference between life and death is warped pretty bad. At his right hand, their pleasures forevermore. We pursue stuff in this life that promotes others' happiness and our own. And we cast off stuff that brings misery to others and to us. What's this beacon? Let's put it at the very front of these chapters of practical teaching. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we ask today that by Your Spirit You might give us help to see the depths and the simplicity of these familiar words. Lord, give us more understanding, more ability to draw out and apply the doctrines of chapters 1 to 11. Let us see something more of what was already put pretty plainly in chapter 6 before we can yield our members instruments of righteousness and stop yielding them as instruments of sin. There's some truth we need to know that we need to reckon upon and therefore be enabled to yield. Give us then grace. Even in these weeks before us as we come to the different items practically unfolded in these remaining chapters that a gospel heart that a renewed mind that gospel thinking will guide us and help us Lord don't let us any of us Lord it is something we so often apply to young people but it does no age discrimination by your Spirit and your Word, inform us with regard to this world, this age, and let us cut off those things that would tend to press us more into the world's way of thinking. Let us instead be renewed, ever growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in His worthy name that we pray. Amen.